0: James chapter 1, we are long into the semester and we have made it all the way to verse 2. James chapter 1 verse 2 and we're going to go through verse 12 today so we will make a little progress. James chapter 1 verse 2 through 12, pull out your Bibles, pull out your notebooks, uh, make sure that you start bringing those notebooks in here for all of the chapel speakers, keep your notes. Let me start in this way. I began taking martial arts at age five. I was just a little kid, it was in the kid's class. I have really fond memories of those days. My dad and I would get into a car. Uh, We would drive two days a week, we'd go to classes. I would participate in the kid's class. He would participate in the adult class. I remember sitting in the bleachers, watching him in the adult class, sometimes doing homework. As we drove, we used to play doodle bug. Anybody know what doodle bug is? Now, very few of you. In those days, which shows kind of how old I am, if you saw a Volkswagen Beetle, you would call out Doodlebug, and we wouldn't. it wasn't Punch Buggy. Now, my dad did not punch me, but we, we called Doodlebug, and we would keep score to see who could identify the most Volkswagen Beetles on our long ride into the karate classes. It took us about 40 minutes to get there. It was something my dad and I did as we talked, as we listened to the radio, as we, as we played Punch Buggy without the punch, Volkswagen Beetle, Doodlebug, as we called it. I still remember the first first first-place trophy I won in the five- to seven-year-old kids' division. I took karate and and was fascinated by it, and many of you probably have noticed that I have really long legs, a 36-inch inseam, a 36-inch sleeve on my shirts, and while uh, long legs and long arms and a short torso make for a really weird person, and while it makes it really hard to buy clothes... And it's one of the reasons I rarely you rarely ever see me without a coat on. Because when I don't wear a coat, it just exacerbates how short my torso is. And I feel self-conscious and look even weirder. And so I don't wear jackets because I'm trying to impress people. I'm just trying to tolerate my own self. But long legs and long arms actually do a world of good in stand-up karate and in on-the-ground jujitsu. It's quite the advantage. I was born extremely flexible. I used to sit as a kid in a split in front of the TV propped up on one arm while I did my homework. So at age 12, about seven years into karate, it came time for the black belt test. I went to this black belt test. I was a little nervous, as you would imagine. I knew all of the material. For these tests, you had to do katas or forms As they were called, you had to do self-defense. You had to do fighting combinations, kicks, punches, blocks, flying kicks, things of that nature. The most fun was when you got to spar with others with the pads on. We'd do one-on-one, two-on-one, three-on-one, and even four-on-one for a limited amount of time. And I walked into that test, and I was confident. I knew the material, even though I was nervous. And I knew that some of the older guys didn't have near the flexibility I had. They couldn't kick as high. They couldn't do these type things. So I went to the test. We lined up, there were about 10 of us at the end of the test, and I heard those words. Everyone had been presented with their black belt. And when they came to me, they said, Tommy, which is what I was known as back in those days, they said, Tommy, we want you to take the test again. We don't think you've reached your full potential. It's a 12-year-old little boy. I was crushed devastated I don't think I said a word to my dad on the way home I think he wanted to talk about it I think I just wanted to end life and quit existing right then and there for me it was over but fortunately for me I had a dad who could help me understand that this was about being the best I could be and not about being better than somebody else I had a dad who helped me with perspective He helped me understand that this trial in life could be the end of me doing karate forever. I could be done with it, I could walk away, or I could dig in and work hard and show some steadfastness, and I could be a good steward of the gifts God has given me. In that moment, I felt embarrassed. In that moment, I felt devastated. Now, with more age, as I look back on it, I realize that that may have been the most important moment in my karate life at that time. I eventually passed the black belt test. I went on to earn my fourth degree black belt. I eventually started my own karate school at age 18. I won several South Carolina state championships, one world amateur championship, and was inducted into the World Martial Arts Hall of Fame. But you know what I remember most out of all of that? Tommy, you need to retake the test. You have not yet reached your full potential. I suspect if we went around the room today, all of us have similar stories of trials in our life. They would be different, but you have stories of trials. You have stories of times when you've come up against something that has caused you to question things. Perhaps it's an engineering class right now. Perhaps it's biology or chemistry or calculus, or I could continue on. Perhaps it's some other trial in life. In James chapter 1 verses 2 through 12, he shows us that trials in life allow us to have a test. And that test helps us determine genuine faith from false faith. Those tests help us, if you have genuine faith, to develop a steadfastness in your faith that allows you to be perfect, complete, a mature Christian lacking in nothing. Would you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word as we read James chapter 1 verses 2 through 12? says this, it says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kind, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, not with doubting, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double minded, he is unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exultation, let the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God promised to those who love him. Dear Lord, I pray today that we would catch a glimpse of what the trials of life mean for us spiritually of how much you love us and how great you are, and we ask this in Jesus' name, Amen. And you may be seated. We start by looking at verses two through four. As we look at verses two through four, we notice the first word we come to is "count." Count here is a command. It's not an option. It's not something that we might do. It's something we are commanded to do. When we encounter a trial, we begin by counting. When you count, it's an accounting term. And in accounting, your value determines your evaluation. So if you're going to count trials, where you place your value determines how you're going to evaluate things. If you value the temporary, over the permanent, you're going to come up with a wrong evaluation. If you value the earthly over the eternal, you're going to come up with a wrong evaluation. We start here by understanding that we must have the right values in order to evaluate trials that come into our life. We must be able to count trials with an eternal perspective. It says you count it all joy. Well, that's difficult. It doesn't mean that we go looking for trials or seeking for trials or that we look at a trial and we are joyful about the fact we have to face yet another trial. But what it's saying to us here is it should be counted altogether joy or pure joy. It's the mature follower of Christ. It's those who are firmly rooted in their faith, who have an eternal perspective, who understand that trials in life can be opportunities for steadfastness to grow, that steadfastness will help us be a mature Christian. a a spiritual leader amongst others, and that this is an opportunity for us to stand firm in our faith. We count it all joy. Eternal perspective being the key to that. He says, count it all joy, my brothers. This is the first of many, my brothers, to come. You notice he does not say my children as some other books do. He says, my brothers, he counts himself as one who is going through this with brothers and sisters alike in the trials, walking through this pilgrimage on this earth. He says when. He doesn't say if. You may be sitting here today and you don't have a care in the world. Everything is great in your life. Everything is perfect. Everything is right on target. If that's you, then notice that this verse says when. It does not say if. And you should prepare even now for the trial that may lie just around the corner for you. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when... You meet trials of various kinds. We will not all go through the same trials in life. I'm sorry to tell you that some of you sitting here in this room will go through different trials than the rest of us may go through. Some of you in this room will face cancer. Some of you in this room will face medical issues in life. Some of you in this room, may the Lord forbid it, but some of you in this room will probably lose a child in your lifetime. Some of you in this room either have or perhaps will too soon lose parents. Some of you in this room will go through the tragedy of watching a mom, a dad, a grandfather, a grandmother go through some type of of dementia care, of Alzheimer's care. You're going to have various trials. Some of you will experience financial devastation. Some of you will have to give up a job or be fired from a job because you stand firm for your faith in Jesus Christ. You're going to go through various trials in life. Some of you are going to have miscarriages. Some of you are going to have trouble having children. Some of you will have a devout desire to be married and the Lord will not bring that along. There will be trials that you will face and they will all be different, but you will face them. So now, Now, right now, prepare your heart, prepare your mind that it says when you meet those various trials, what are we to do? James tells us that, you know, he doesn't say this is anything we don't know. It's something we know It's something we just need to be reminded of for, you know, that the testing of your faith, even though we don't like it, even though we may not want to go through it, the testing is for us a good thing because it produces steadfastness. That steadfastness allows, when it has its full effect, to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You know this. You understand this. You have a test in chemistry. You have a test in biology. You have a test in engineering. You have a test in English, in history. Whatever course it may be, you have a test. Why do you have a test? Because your professors understand the sinful nature of mankind. They understand that they could just tell you you need to know this material and trust that you know the material. But if they put a test in front of you to evaluate whether you know the material, you are gonna study like never before, 24 to 48 hours before that test, or at least two hours before that (laughs) test arrives. And you are gonna really cram that information into your brain, hopefully throughout the course of the whole semester so it stays longer. But you are gonna cram that information into your brain. Why? Because there's a test. Prepare spiritually prepare deeply, prepare broadly in the knowledge of the Scripture, so when the test and when the trial comes, you will be found steadfast in your faith. And it says, let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete. We're not going to reach Christian perfectionism in this world. We're not going to be absolutely perfect, but what this means is James is writing here, as in the rest of the book, for spiritual maturity. So for those of you that you're a believer and you're in this room and you wanna be spiritually deep and you wanna dig in, this is for you. It is writing to you saying, count these trials and when you meet these various trials, stand firm, be steadfast. And perhaps you're sitting there and you're thinking to yourself, I I don't know that I'm there. I don't know that I am steadfast. I don't know that I am as mature as I need to be. It happens to all of us. Think about life. In life, we encounter babies. Babies are selfish. In life we encounter that toddler stage when you have little children playing with toys and they don't play with toys very well and when they get together and one of them takes the other one's toy it becomes a big deal and they begin to fight and grapple over the toys and if you don't play with my toys right I'm taking my toys and I'm going home and you experience those type attitudes of inner self-centeredness and selfishness. We see the same thing spiritually and so perhaps you're sitting here this morning and you're saying I'm not there. I'm just immature. I am a spiritual infant. I am a self-centered spiritual. spiritual toddler and I know it I am a passive aggressive Christian I get all psychology on you when I start talking about my spiritual life maybe you're here and you are a manipulative Christian you are such a manipulative Christian that you'll go on Facebook and Twitter and post about all these things knowing in your own mind that you're putting them out there just so people will think something good about you even though you don't believe those thoughts yourself you see it I do too Perhaps you're here and you are that Christian who has to have the worst struggles of anybody here. Somebody comes up and something bad happens, you've met this person. It doesn't matter what the story is, they can top it. They may not be able to top it about themselves, but they can tell a story about somebody else that can top it. Don't be that person. The struggles that you're going through have to be worse than everybody else's. Perhaps you are still caught in that. You are not there and you don't know about it. Perhaps you see this in your own life. You encounter a problem and immediately you want to run away. You don't want to face that problem head on. You don't want to have a conversation with somebody about conflict. You would rather run away and get away from the problem and avoid the problem. You encounter a class that's difficult and your first instinct is, I'm going to drop this class and find an easier class rather than working hard, studying hard, seeking help, humbling yourself. Perhaps you go through life and you don't take things in stride. One bad test, one bad day, one bad lecture, one bad answer will ruin your entire week. You don't have the maturity to say, there are going to be many of these things in life, and I have to take them in stride. He says here, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So you lack. What do we do? Well, fortunately for us, James tells us in verse 5 if you lack wisdom, connecting the lacking there, if any of you lacks wisdom, What do we do first? We ask of God. We must ask. How do we ask? Means we humble ourselves. If I'm going to ask somebody for help, if I'm going to go to the cove, I have to humble myself and say, I need a little bit of help. There's nothing wrong with that. It's spiritual. It's good. It's godly. So if you need help, go get help. When you go to your professor and you say, I need help, it's humbling yourself because you recognize they know more about the subject than you do. When you go to God and ask for wisdom, you're recognizing God knows more than we do. We should not be prideful, arrogant people that think we know everything. The first thing we learn when we start educating ourselves is how little we actually know. It takes, it takes humility. You go to him. And if any of you lacks wisdom, you ask. You ask of God. Because you recognize that godly wisdom trumps worldly knowledge. We ask of God who gives generously. We have a glorious, generous, gracious God. Go to him and ask. We ask of God who gives to all. So if you're in the room and you think, well, I'm special, God's only gonna give knowledge to me, wrong, he gives to all. But if you're in the room today and you think, God's not gonna give me any special wisdom because of how sinful I am, because of how bad I am, because of the things I've done in life, then I want you to hear this text as it speaks to you and says, God is a generous giver and God gives to all. You go to God, you ask, God who is generous, God who gives to all, and you don't have to worry about the reprimand, the rebuke, or God embarrassing you when you go and ask. When you go and ask God for wisdom, he doesn't look at you and say, how do you not know this yet? How are you this immature? How are you this unwise? It says if you lack wisdom, you go to God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given. I remember about 20 years ago, I was listening to a John Maxwell's leadership lesson as I was traveling to and from the karate schools. And as I was going, I remember him talking about this particular principle. And I remember that day I started praying for wisdom. There really has not been, there's been very few days, if any, since that point, 23 years ago in my life, I haven't asked for wisdom from God over some matter. It's not that I doubt, but it's that every day something happens, something comes up, and I feel like I need wisdom from God in order to make a good decision. I encourage you, humble yourself, ask for wisdom from God For everything that happens in life, our first impulse, our first instinct should be God, give us wisdom, grant us wisdom to see what you want to accomplish in this situation, to be able to understand this situation with an eternal perspective. Lord, help us to understand and see. So if you desire to be spiritually mature, remain steadfast in trials. If you're not sure you can do that and you lack wisdom, go to God and ask God who will give generously that wisdom to you. But notice what the text says to us. It says in verse six, but let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea. The double minded man will receive nothing. You must be genuine in your faith. You must seek the Lord. Double minded here really is die It literally means double sold. It describes a person living between two worlds, seeking to be in the world, seeking to be of God. And perhaps there are some of you here even today in this auditorium who you know and you recognize that you are still in the world, you still like being in the world, and yet there's a part of you that desires to be in the kingdom and of God, and you are in between two worlds, and perhaps you're like a person who is boarding a boat for the first time. Have you ever watched somebody who's uncomfortable around boats, and they decide to get on a boat? They walk up to the edge of the dock and they look at this boat that's in the water floating. It's unstable, it's moving. And so they put their foot on the edge of the boat, as if to test the boat just slightly. But they're scared. So they put a little bit more weight onto the boat. And what happens when you put just a little bit of weight onto the boat? That little bit of weight actually starts pushing the boat away from the dock. And there comes a moment where you have to make a decision. You either have to decide to get in the boat, get on the dock, or eventually... Tightness of muscles or gravity will take over and you will find yourself firmly planted in the water on the dock or in the boat, one of the three, but not gracefully at all. And there are some of you here that perhaps today you recognize in your own mind, I'm a double-minded person. You understand I am that person. I have my foot firmly planted in the world and I like it and I have another foot, and I'm testing the waters of this faith, and you're gonna have to make a decision. Are you gonna step into the boat and trust and put your faith in God? Are you gonna try to do this split? And if you do this split, you're gonna encounter a spiritual test and a spiritual trial, and you are gonna collapse into ruin because you cannot be a double-minded person. Here we see it. James says, ask with faith, not with doubting, Not double-minded. He does not have any tolerance for the double-minded person. He says, in fact, they're like a wave of the sea. They're driven to the right and to the left. They're tossed up and down. That person must not suppose he will receive anything. Alistair Begg shared a story. It was about a sailor on the south coast of England who told his captain, his chaplain. He said, chaplain, he said, you don't understand. He said, you're telling us to walk the straight and the narrow path but you don't realize the temptation we faced. We're blown. We're tossed about. We really can't be blamed for what happens to us. The chaplain drew the sailor's attention. He pointed him out to the water where two sailboats were moving and both of them were moving with their sails flapping, but they were headed in opposite directions. One was headed to the west. The other was headed to the east. The chaplain said to him, one boat goes east, one boat goes west by the self-same winds that blow. It's the set of their sails and not the gales that determine which way they go. Have you set yourselves upon Jesus? The same winds blow on the just and the unjust alike. It's not the winds of life that matter to us. It's not the direction or the size of the gale. It's whether we have set ourselves on Jesus, that's what matters. If you set yourselves on Jesus, you'll reach your eternal destination, even though the whole world may be blown into the rocky shores of utter despair. The scripture commands us not to be double-minded. It commands us to set ourselves on Jesus. Think about Joshua in chapter 24 verse 15 where he says, "Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river, the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord." Joshua set his cells on God. I ask you today, have you set yourselves on Jesus? Think about Elijah in 1 Kings 18:21. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, then follow him. Elijah had set his cells on God. Have you set yourselves on Jesus? Consider Jesus in Matthew twenty-two, thirty-seven through 38, where it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Set yourselves on Jesus and on Jesus alone. Jesus commanded for all of us, all our heart, all our soul, all our mind to be devoted for him. Here, James continues on with an example. He talks in verse nine about the lowly brother and then the rich brother. Perhaps he notes that the lowly brother, the person from poverty, looks out upon the world and sees with covetousness, I wish I had this. I wish I had that. I wish I had more to provide. And there's a temptation that goes with not having things, the temptation to steal the temptation to covet. Perhaps he looks upon the rich person and the rich person with everything that he has has a different temptation. That rich person has a temptation to no longer trust in God to be the one who provides, but to trust in the possessions that he has, to trust in his own abilities, to become prideful or arrogant in what he has. And so James says, let that lowly brother, let him boast in exultation. Let that rich brother boast in his humiliation. Because the rich brother knows that like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Here he gives you an example pointing back to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. The grass wither, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. The lowly man can't covet the things that rust and the moth will destroy. The rich man can't take pride in the earthly possessions which have no eternal place. You are here. Most of you as students... 18 to 22. You are in that moment where your grass and your flower are blooming and you have potential in the future and you you go run and you run as though you never grow tired. You play sports as though there is no tomorrow. You have everything ahead of you and sometimes there's the tendency to look at yourself and to think to yourself, I am Superman. I am invincible. Nobody can touch me. I am bulletproof. But one day, Perhaps sooner than you even think, as that freshman 15 begins to creep upon you, you realize that my metabolism is not nearly as fast as it used to be. One day you look in the mirror and you see a new line and you wonder, where did that come from? One day you look and you see a blemish on your skin and you wonder, how did that get there? You get an injury one day and it takes a lot longer to heal than it used to. And before you know it, you start seeing these things over and over and over again. And next thing you know, you need help getting up the steps or you need help getting up out of a seat. It happens to all of us. It happens to the best of us. It happens to those who have great athletic ability and those who have no athletic ability. It will happen to you too. You cannot avoid it. And God has given us a great yearly reminder of the flower that blooms up and is so beautiful. And yet it fades so quickly away when the sun comes up to scorch it. Of that grass which comes up and it looks so pretty. And then the winter time comes and all of a sudden the grass is no more. And it reminds us that we too just have a fleeting life on this earth we take no pride in our possessions we take no pride in the abilities we have because those abilities will not last in eternity they are but a drop in the bucket it is a seasonal spiritual challenge that comes upon us to realize that we are living this life not for the here and the now but for the eternity and for what awaits us as we live forever with jesus have you set yourselves in the direction of your own strength your external appearance, your abilities. If you have, you have set yourselves to land upon the rocky shores of despair. Only one course will triumph over the trials, and that's to set yourselves on Jesus. I fear that there are some of you that are so caught up in your looks, and your appearance, in your vainness of yourself. You're so inwardly focused that you can't see yourself as God sees you. You look in the mirror and all you see are blemishes. And God looks at you and all he sees is a soul that he created for his glory to worship him. And he sees you as a beautiful son or daughter of the king. I fear that there are some of you that you grow so frustrated with your failures that you decide to harm yourself. You decide to do bad things to yourself. You grow frustrated because you are trying to work your way or earn your way into some acceptance and you have yet to realize that when you set yourselves on Christ that you understand that it's not about how good we are. It's about how great God is. He has already paid the price. It is by grace, not of works, that we are accepted by God. It is through being united with Jesus Christ and setting ourselves with him and him alone. And so if you're here today and you're struggling with what you look like and your appearance, if you're struggling with whether other people will accept you, if you're struggling with whether you can succeed or not succeed and you want to hurt yourself, I encourage you, I challenge you, I urge you, set yourselves only on Jesus. Recognize that Jesus loved you so much he came and he died on the cross for your sins he is coming again to establish a place for you jesus is your one hope set yourselves on jesus christ i wish you could see yourself for just a moment as god sees you the love he has for you the unconditional acceptance he gives to each of us it says here the sun rises with its scorching heat it withers the grass the flower falls As beauty fades, as beauty perishes, so will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Don't set yourselves on your athletic ability, on your beauty, on your intellectual capacity, on your material possessions, on anything that fades away on this earth. Set yourselves on Jesus Christ. Verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Do you see this? It says at the very end of this verse, to those who love him. You know, that's ultimately the challenge, isn't it? That's ultimately the challenge of not being the double-minded person. It's to those who want to be steadfast, those who love God, that they will withstand the trials of life. It's not the double-minded trying to balance both worlds. It's the one who has set themselves only on Jesus Christ. And so I urge you, I challenge you, don't be double-minded, Don't be a person who prays without faith. Be a person who is committed, who is devoted, who is steadfast, seeking Jesus, pursuing Jesus with all that you are. Get rid of the world. Leave it behind. Pursue Christ. Step into the boat. You say, but you don't understand what I've been through. You're right. I don't. I can't. But Jesus can, and he does. And set yourselves on him. I want to tell you about a man named Horatio. He was born in 1828. He had a successful legal practice. He was a successful young businessman. He began to buy a a bunch of land and real estate on Lake Michigan shoreline. He began to have children. He was close friends with the great evangelist Dwight L. Moody. Then all of a sudden a challenge began to come into his life. His son died tragically. After that happened, the great Chicago fire of 1871 wiped out the real estate that he owned on the shoreline. He was devastated financially. Horatio planned for his family and him to take a European trip. They were going to go over with Moody and others and participate in that, and then visit some places overseas. And at the last minute, business called for Horatio to stay back, but he sent his wife and his four daughters ahead of him. It was on November the twenty second, eighteen seventy three, that the SS Ville de Houvre was struck by the Lochern, an English vessel. The ship sank within twelve minutes. The survivors finally landed in Wales and Horatio's wife sent him a cable containing these words, Saved alone. Horatio, upon learning this, immediately left to join his wife. It's told that as he approached the area where the ship would have sank into the waters, the very spot where his four daughters would have drowned, that Horatio G. Spafford penned these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul." My sin of the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. This is steadfast faith for trying times. This is steadfast in Christ alone. Have you set yourselves on Jesus? Oh Lord, I know that there are some today in this room who have trials. Father, I know there are some today in this room who fit the description of the double minded. Lord, today would you take tragedy and turn it into triumph? Today would you take their trials and make them treasures? Would you help them with eternal perspective, Lord, to take pain and turn it into a platform for your glory? Lord, today would you help us to be honest with ourselves, to evaluate our soul's desire, Lord, today would you help us to set ourselves on Jesus alone.